Hello and welcome to The Spectator podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman. This week, the government commits to a green target of net zero emissions by 2050. But how costly will meeting it be? And stateside, with the Mueller report showing the extent of Trump's meddling, should Democrats try to impeach him? And last, are modern fathers taken for granted? First up, in her last attempt at a legacy, Theresa May committed the government to meeting the Climate Change Committee's 2050 target this week. But it's not just the outgoing Prime Minister who is turning green. Across the Conservative Party, from Tory leadership contenders to backbench MPs, a green wave is washing over. Boris Johnson has marvelled about wind farms and solar panels, while Sajid Javid has declared that fighting climate change ought to be like fighting terrorism. Since when were Tories so concerned with the environment? And are the new environmentalists being truthful about the costs of tackling climate change? I'm joined by Lord Peter Lilly, a trustee for the Global Warming Policy Foundation, a climate sceptical lobby group, and Sam Richards, director of the Conservative Environment Network, the independent forum for climate-conscious Conservatives. So Sam, do you think the Conservative Party is being greenwashed, or at least seems to be getting greener in its perspective? I think it definitely is getting greener, and I think that there are... Well, I mean, first it's important to say that there is a long tradition of conservative environmentalism, right, that stretches back past Margaret Thatcher's seminal speech on climate change to the United Nations, all the way back to Edmund Burke and his concept of intergenerational fairness, leaving the the planet in a, um, in a, in a good state for our children. But I think it is getting greener now for three main reasons. One, that the science on climate change, that the science on the impact on, of air pollution on our children is so much clearer, so the moral duty to act is so much stronger. Two, the economic case is so much stronger. Renewables are now much cheaper than they used to be. Solar, 85% cheaper than it was in 2010. Offshore wind contracts are a lot cheaper as well. So the economic case for environmentalism is very strong. Uh, and finally, the political case as well is very strong. We know that climate change is the number one issue that younger voters want to hear more about from politicians. We've seen the school strikers out on the on the streets. So it isn't just uh, an economically beneficial thing to do. There isn't just that, that, that moral case, but it is also a politically expedient course of action. Peter Lilly, do you agree with that, particularly that there's a political advantage in the Conservatives doing this? I can understand why people go along with it at the moment. It's not the time to change your policy or rethink your policy in the middle of an election, be it a leadership election or a general election, as we discovered when the Prime Minister decided to rethink social care in the course of an election. So a stage where all the candidates are paying lip service to it. But they would do well to look to the electoral experience abroad. Whenever climate change has become an electoral issue, it's as likely to result in a backlash against the cost as it is against enthusiasm for the rhetoric. Uh, You saw that with the Gilets jaunes in France. You saw it in the Australian election, where the Australian government was behind it every single poll for two years. But then the sleeping opponents of uh, climate hysteria uh, came out and re-elected it. You saw it in Alberta, in Canada. So uh, it's much less of a clear-cut electoral winner than people imagine. And do you think your party has in the past been sucked too far into this? I'm thinking of its uh, lack of opposition to the Climate Change Act, for instance. Yes, I, I was one of five members of parliament that voted against it, and the only one who went to the a vote office and got a copy of the impact assessment. And throughout the whole 
debate in Parliament. It was treated as a matter of religious observance, not of rational debate. Nobody discussed the costs, even though the impact assessment showed that the potential costs were twice the maximum benefits. The only time governments ever produced an impact assessment which showed effectively you shouldn't do it. Uh, unless you find some other way of doing it, which makes the costs less and the benefits more. Sam, there is a danger mm. in policy making, isn't there, where people want to do something, say, they say something must be done, and then they alight upon a something, anything, which may or may not work. But because it's such a, an important issue, such as climate change, mm. to oppose it would be to, seen, to be seen to oppose the fight against climate change as opposed to the measure itself. Do you think that there is, a, a, as, as Peter says, a sort of religiosity about this? I mean, just to pick up on the point of cost, I mean, talking about the 2008 Climate Change Act shows, or is, is a reminder just of how far we've come. I think it is true, of course, at that point, renewables were expensive sources of energy. Now, the cheapest source of electricity is onshore wind. So there is no longer that, that trade-off between climate action and, and putting off putting up bills. In fact, if you wanted to reduce bills, the best thing that you could do would be to roll out more onshore wind. But to come back to you, I'm really sorry, what was, your, what was, the, what was the point? Too much religiosity. There's too this. much religiosity about this. I don't think so, and I don't agree that this hasn't been thought through. I mean, this is... If you look at the, the, the testimony of the 6,000 scientists who reported into the IPCC's report last October, if you look at the very long piece of work, very detailed piece of work that the Committee on Climate Change have just done on this net zero target, this is not something that is being rushed into. This is not something that has been done on faith. This is rational science-based policymaking. Peter? Uh, I wish it was. <laughs> Harking back to that famous debate, the third reading of the Climate Change Act, when I and four others decided to vote against it, and we went off to drown our sorrows down the corridor and noticed that outside it was snowing. And I came back into the chamber and called a point of order and that we were passing a measure based on the assumption the world was getting warmer. At the time, it was snowing in London in October for the first time in 74 years. And I was greeted by cries, but extreme cold is a symptom of global warming. And but, but that's, a, it, not, that's not a scientific approach. If everything is a symptom of global warming, uh, nothing can refute it. I, I mean, I believe in the basic science. I'm a scientist by training. So you but, do believe that global warming, well, that man-made global warming oh, yeah, is happening? Yes, yes, yes. You can test what happens if you pass radiation through uh, a, a chamber with CO2. Uh, clearly, it has a blanket effect and keeps some heat in. And I'm a lukewarmer. I think it keeps a moderate, modest amount of heat in it, slowly warming the... Thing, but in terms of damage, half a degree more than the present temperature being something catastrophic is absurd. Could anybody tell me the current temperature is roomed within half a degree? But in terms of sea levels, that, that does have a ah, huge very good. Now, read the IPCC. What does it say about sea levels? Clearly the worst possible damage would be the melting of the ice caps. It says this will take millennia, thousands of years. I think in the next hundred years we'll find a solution to this. We needn't waste thousands of years. So... It's not an imminent crisis. Sam, climate campaigners often react with ridicule when people say, oh, it's snowing, what about global warming? Mm. Do you think there is, though, a problem with the way in which the effects of climate change are being explained to the general public, that it's not just that we're going to have 
drought uh, throughout the summer and that we're all going to be very hot and never going to need a jumper ever again, mm. that it is more complex than that. But, but actually, as Peter says, that everything seems to be a symptom of climate change and therefore people who are sceptical or sort of not entirely confident of the science mm. think it's all just made up. I think that's right. I think it is inevitably a communications challenge when you have something that feels quite remote and the and the impacts of which are quite long term or very long term it is inevitably quite hard to make that uh, relevant to ordinary people's lives but we are increasingly seeing the effects on ordinary people's lives and we see that of course with with air pollution in our cities and we we know the impact that that is happening that is having on our children's lungs we know the parts of north africa and the Middle East that are increasingly desertifying, are increasingly becoming uninhabitable, and the millions of people that will subsequently be driven from their homes, as the IPCC say in their report, if we carry on with our current rates of warming. So I think it is, it is a communications challenge, but unfortunately we are already starting to see the effects of climate change in the world today now. Who do you think are the, the greenest of the Tory leadership candidates? Well, as your piece makes clear, they are all very keen, and it is absolutely fantastic that they're all very keen to talk about their green credentials. I mean, clearly Michael Gove has been a brilliant reforming Secretary of State at the Department for the Environment, but I know that I think 10 out of the 11, and indeed all of the remaining candidates, have committed to a net zero target. Peter, is it not the case that there's no political competition really for, for the Conservatives here? Because Labour, the Lib Dems, uh, other parties are all really largely committed to perhaps even more ambitious policies on climate change. So the Tories don't need to worry about the impact of higher costing policies to tackle climate change. They do because whoever is the government will get blamed when it happens, as Monsieur Macron found. So what should your party do? Should it be doing anything on the environment? It should be demanding a full costing of this programme, spelt out uh, with also the implications for different industrial sectors. It's interesting in the House of Lords, which is as trendy a body as you get on this subject, nonetheless a number of Labour peers, former members of Parliament, stood up and said, we want to see what impact this is going to have on individual industries like those that they'd represented when they were in the House of Commons. If we can start getting some concrete realism into this debate, instead of stories about what's going to happen in a thousand years' time, treat as if it's going to happen in ten years' time. Thanks, Peter and Sam. Hello, I'm Olivia Potts, and I'm Spectator Life's Vintage Chef, and I'm here to tell you about the new Spectator Life website, where you can find articles on food and drink, travel, fashion, theatre, cinema, and so much more. And you can also find all the Table Talk podcasts, where Lara Prendergast and I talk to notable people about their life through food. Just go to life.spectator.co.uk. And next, the Mueller report might not have dug up any evidence of Russian collusion, but it does show President Trump in an awful light. In his piece this week, John Rick MacArthur, president of Harper's Magazine, details the ways in which Trump tried to get Mueller fired and calls for Trump to be impeached. 
But why haven't the Democrats started impeachment processes just yet? I'm joined by Rick Now, together with Karen Robinson, host of the Primarily 2020 podcast. In your piece in this week's magazine, you call for Trump to be impeached. Why? Well, I think that he's gone beyond the pale because I read the Mueller report and I see all these examples of him abusing the public trust, behaving as though he were above the law, uh, obstructing justice, and generally meeting the, uh, the threshold that Alexander Hamilton set in the Federalist Papers about, again, this is a, not just a legal uh, definition of a crime, it's a, an example of a political crime. In other words, he's, he's abused the public trust to such an exa- extent that he should be removed from office. Now, I understand that the, there's a pragmatic argument against impeaching him, which I've heard many, many times and which I make fun of in the piece, or I criticize in the piece, which argues that impeaching Trump, because remember, he has to be impeached in the House of Representatives first, and then he gets put on trial in the Senate. Pragmatists say this will help him because it will turn him into a martyr. He can't be convicted in the Senate because the Senate is controlled by the Republican Party, and thus it, it can only backfire. And I say, on the contrary, Trump has done nothing but say, since the Mueller report came out, that the Mueller report exonerates him. So people just throw up their hands and say, oh, the hell with it. We're not going to, why bother reading it? Because it exonerates him. If he's impeached by the House, if there's a formal, if articles of impeachment are voted by the House, and the two sides have to prepare for a trial in the Senate, the public will become educated about what is, what is actually in the Mueller report. And they'll begin to understand why this one Republican uh, congressman, Justin Amash, has broken ranks with uh, his colleagues and has, has come out for impeachment. OK, so Karen, do you agree with that line? I do tend to agree with that line, although I also think there are political complexities that we need to consider. But I think impeachment is always talked about as if it's kind of a a switch, either we do or don't impeach. But people forget that constitutionally, it's actually a process. So there would be hearings, there would be investigations, there would be, we could host it as effectively a trial that is held in the House, where we would be able to get evidence. One of the reasons I think impeachment is becoming inevitable is because initially, when when the Mueller report came out, we were already in the process of doing standard oversight. Democrats, having taken back Congress, the House in 2018, were conducting oversight hearings, and they were finding a lot of troubling wrongdoing, not just related to the Mueller report, but other crimes. Trump, since Mueller came out, has used that as an opportunity, pretending that the report exonerates him, which it does not on any level, pretending that it exonerates him, he's been using that as an excuse to then refuse subpoenas, refuse appearances by administration personnel in front of Congress. So he's basically trying to shut down not just the impeachment process, but the normal oversight process, which in itself is an impeachable action, I would argue. So is that why the Democrats haven't gone 
all guns blazing into this yet. Yeah, so the Democrats are stuck in a series of court battles trying to, and they're winning them. I mean, we keep taking the Trump administration to court when they've claimed that he didn't have to submit his tax returns. We took them to court. We won that. Now we're in a we're in an appeals process. We're taking them to court to try and get witnesses seen. Um, contempt of Congress. William Barr, his attorney general, was just brought up on contempt of Congress by a committee. He has basically shut down all congressional oversight and the official legal position that the White House has taken is that the only body that is empowered to investigate the president is his own White House, the, the just, his own Justice Department. The problem with that is that if you read the Mueller report, Mueller makes clear that his guidance that he is basing it on is that the president can't be prosecuted by the Justice Department because the Justice Department's position is the president cannot be, the sitting president cannot be prosecuted. So what you have is a crisis of accountability. There is literally no way for the president to be held to account for any of his wrongdoing except impeachment. And Trump has effectively made that inevitable. Um, Perhaps he's trying to goad us into impeaching him. I don't know what his strategy is, but that's where we're winding up. Rick, do you think any impeachment effort could actually pass the Senate? Well, it could pass the House because the Democrats have a a solid majority in the House. We don't know what would happen in a Senate trial. It requires two-thirds of the members to convict. And as I say in my piece, any good red-blooded prosecutor would love to get the White House counsel, Don McGahn, on the witness stand, or Rance Priebus, who was chief of staff at the time, and ask them, what exactly were you talking about? Or what was McGahn talking about when he said, the president told me to do all this crazy shit? And the crazy shit that he's referring to in the first instance is trying to get McGahn to fire Mueller or to pressure Rod Rosenstein the deputy attorney general, to fire Mueller before he's even started. It's just blatant, blatant obstruction of justice and and ultimately intimidation of potential witnesses. And the idea that he could just uh, sort of laugh, not laugh it off, but reject it, pretend that it didn't happen, is absurd. In a trial, in the Senate trial, the Republican majority would be forced to hear McGahn and Priebus explain exactly what went on in those conversations on the phone where Trump tries to get McGahn to get Mueller fired before the investigation could even get started. Now, a skilled prosecutor, as you know, can draw out uh, the questions and the answers at length, and I'm sure that they would be able to get McGahn and Priebus to say more than they said to, to, um, to the investigators for Mueller. So, Anything, anything can happen in a trial. But even if Trump is acquitted, the process of the trial, in addition to the, what, what's already happened with the impeachment process in the House, will weaken him politically. So I, don't, I no longer buy the argument okay. that this is going to somehow gonna help Trump. I'm come in on this now. Yeah. yeah. So I think I think uh, well, the question of whether the Senate will ultimately impeach Trump is uh, uh, so not impeach. So the House impeaches. The Senate Convict. is the one that decides whether removal from office would be the yeah. next step. And I think to some extent at this point, that's kind of academic, because what we need to do is first a finding a fact. Um, he's perfectly correct that, you know, there needs to be a trial. There needs to be hearings. There is a legal strategy and a political strategy. So the legal strategy.
strategy the Democrats are thinking about at the moment is there are some Democrats who argue that legally our constitutional right to conduct oversight of the president would be stronger if we were in an impeachment hearing because the the constitutional derogation of powers to Congress is very clear that Congress can pretty much do any action it needs to take in order to investigate for that. So there's an argument to make that it would make it both legally more clear and also politically more straightforward. The political problem that Democrats have and the reason why we've seen resistance to it so far from a lot of Democrats, including including Nancy Pelosi and a lot of the House leadership, is this. In 2018, Democrats won back the House with a strategy of ignoring Donald Trump as much as possible. Not his policies, but him personally. What they tried to do was focus on all of the issues that we had that we knew were winning issues, healthcare, education, kind of core bread and butter issues where we knew that we were politically winning and that we had a story to tell to the American people. A lot of the 2020 Democratic candidates and even candidates for Congress and Senate, they're wary of spending the significant amount of time and political capital and attention that we would have to spend between over the next couple of years arguing for impeachment when actually the political argument is they have a better case to make to the American people to win back the presidency and gains in the House. So that's the dilemma that you're seeing with Democrats. And I think you'll see that dilemma kind of fought out very publicly. Well, here here's where we disagree. I think the Democrats are cowardly. And I think that they're They've dismissed the Trump supporters as uneducated or uneducable racists and idiots who can't be persuaded that Trump is uh, is culpable. And I don't. I think that's that's a, a kind of arrogance and condescension that's that's shot through the Democratic Party. They lost the working class to Trump in 2016 because of their terrible economic policies, their their deregulation of the banks but particularly because of their trade policies. And I, I think I think uh, Trump won because of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, and the deal that Clinton cut with China, which sent millions of jobs, industrial jobs overseas. So I, I think that's the reason they he lost. But I still think that they have a fear of an impeachment trial dredging up the Clinton impeachment. And people are going to ask, well, let's compare the impeachment of Bill Clinton and the, and the trial and the impeachment of Donald Trump. And I think they're very, very worried about the Cl- being, having Clinton and Monica Lewinsky raised again. Yeah. I mean, bottom line, I do think Democrats are tending to overlearn the lessons of the Clinton impeachment. But I also think, and I don't disagree with you on this, actually, because fundamentally, I do think impeachment is the right political judgment, even though it's a hard one. The reason why is the current Democratic position is that we say Trump is a danger to the republic and has committed crimes, but we're not going to do anything about it because it's politically inconvenient. I think that's a losing political message and actually does make us look weak. So I think that's the conversation you'll see Democrats having quite soon. Thanks, Rick and Karen. And last, modern fathers seem more caring, more present than the fathers of the 20th century. But Cosmo Landsman laments in this week's issue that despite his best efforts not to be like his father, it seems like his new age fathering techniques are just not working. His son would rather spend time with his iPad than with him. So has the fatherhood revolution failed? Cosmo joins me now together with Dr Anna Machen, evolutionary anthropologist and author of The Life of Dad. So Cosmo, in your piece this week, you say that fathers should give up on the unrealistic aspiration of being a better father than their own father was. Why? Well, because I think we have this kind of exaggerated set of expectations. 
dads, you know, in the past just got on with their lives. I mean, that's, you know, a bit simplistic. But generally speaking, that's the perception that we have. And today, modern fathers want to be awesome dads and great dads producing these wonderful, creative, super happy children. And I think what we need is a more modest set of aspirations. And I think it's going to, you know, that's, that's what we need to be thinking about. Anna, do you agree that the fatherhood revolution has failed? Gosh, no, definitely not. I think I think the problem that Cosmo has is actually a problem that all parents have, whether you're a mum or a dad. We're sold this idea of perfection. So there's a lot, you know, you look at anything, you look at books, you look at parenting programs. It's all about you. Can, if you do this, you'll you'll have perfect children, have a perfect life. Life's not like that. Being a parent is very very tough. But certainly I think what we're seeing with fatherhood now is because men are more aware of actually how important they are to their children, and I do a lot of work looking at the input they have into development, for example, they want to be more hands-on because they know that that's going to be for the good of their children. The problem they have is is then juggling that with every other aspect of our life because unfortunately our culture has not kept up and it's very hard for a man to fulfil what he wants to do as a father so at the same time as work. So is our culture saying that men can have it all when they can't? Yeah, in the same familiar. way. Yeah, it's very familiar. It's what they said to women in the eighties. But, it, but isn't there also an element? They want these perfect children to compete with other people's children to show that their children is much more kind of wonderful and fulfilled and whatever than than other people's. I think you're probably talking about quite a sector of parents. Mm, Um, I don't want to do stereotypes, but maybe metropolitan parents. Um, Certainly, I study parents in many different contexts, and I wouldn't say that all parents are like that, or all fathers are like that, to be honest. The best thing you can do for your child as a a father, actually, is to put them on a very long leash Mm. and let them... Ignore them. Ignoring them is a good move, certainly for some of the time. Letting them get bored is good. good that's, That's my point, is that the modern dad doesn't believe that. The modern orthodoxy is very much against that. You have to keep them entertained. You have to stimulate them. You have to give them extra classes. You have to be engaged and all that. The laissez-faire attitude is, is, is fast disappearing. I mean, amongst people I know. And this okay. is what you call dad anxiety, yes, isn't yes. it? Yeah. I mean, I would say certainly maybe some fathers are thinking that. They should certainly read my book because in my book, what I say is actually the complete opposite. Is actually fathers evolved to be the parent to actually push their child out into the outside world and say, right, independent, autonomy, off you go. Now, obviously, they need to give them some skills to do that. Mm. But that's not about hot housing them and having violin lessons. It's actually about helping them to understand failure, helping them to confront risk, pushing them to do things. And actually, mm. if as a parent you do that, then you end up with much more resilient, independent children. I mean, no, some parents want, you know, their child to ace everything and and that's their way of doing things and I'm not going to criticise them. But certainly, actually, dad's evolved to yeah have that long leash and actually say to the child, you know, at some point you're leaving. And this comes to your point about the snowflake generation, Cosmo. Well, that, that's it. I mean, uh, you know, the idea that, I mean, what you're talking about is what I think dad should do, that we should help our kids to be more robust, to deal with adversity by facing up to it. But we don't do that because we're always there. We want to prevent that. We sort of maneuver them away from anything that would be dangerous. I mean, I see kids now on the street with helmets and pads and everything, and they're just walking to the shop. They're not even doing anything. I mean, it's it's so, the idea of being cocooned is so far, it's gone so extreme now. I think that's a, a big mistake. Oh, it has. And it has gone extreme. And I think one of the things that, that I've written about in the past is the sort of classic helicopter parent who's constantly hovering to make sure that little Puddles doesn't hurt himself or, you know, 
doesn't have to go doesn't have to confront any problems and doesn't have to confront risk and they sort all their problems for their children and actually you're doing your kid a massive disservice if you do mm. that because you're not giving them the life skills and i mean i don't know about the snowflake generation they're not something that i particularly look at but certainly as as somebody who studies child development and studies parenting the most important thing you can do for your child but is to teach you, them to fail and fail well. But don't you find, amongst the parents that you told, I mean, these are the parents I know, there is a sort of a sense of disappointment that they thought that being a dad was going to be much more rewarding and fulfilling and was better than, you know, the triumphs of the marketplace or business or the boardroom. This was the great discovery. And it hasn't turned out that way for many of them. I don't know. I mean, I think it depends on the father you speak to and their expectations. I think all parents have to have their expectations handled. I mean, those of us who've got kids know that certainly it's not a skipping through the meadows moment most of the time. Um, there are moments of great joy. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm sad that some people feel that way about being a father. But... What worries you more? Is it helicopter parenting or smartphones? Oh, that's a big one. Probably helicopter parenting. Because, actually, if you are, as a parent introducing your child into the world you know we're not going to get rid of smartphones we're not going to get rid of social media my research group at Oxford does a lot of work on social media and what we actually need to do is equip our children with the skills to deal with the risks that are there because you're not you know people who ban it for example that's not the way to go because you're not giving them any life skills so no helicopter parenting I think is is more dangerous simply because you're handicapping your child you're not giving them the life skill to survive And that's actually ultimately as a parent and particularly as a father, what you're actually supposed to be doing. So if you're talking to a dad or prospective father who is viewing parenting in the way that Cosmo has described it, almost like their sort of next career venture where you can be successful. What advice would you give to them as they're kind of anxiously trying to work out how to be the best? There's no such thing as the best. You, you know, your kid will always turn around to you when they're 25 and remember the one thing that you did not do right. And <laughs> Forget, tell you about yeah, exactly. I mean, my child, who's only 12, did it to me the other day and I can't even remember the incident. So, you know, there's no such thing as being the best. You know, you have to try your best and be good enough. But actually, it's not about necessarily the achievements on the page. It's actually about, is this person a competent person to go out into the world and survive and if they are you're doing an okay job i'd like to ask you anna there's a school of thought that says actually parenting doesn't have that great an impact on how our children turn out that's going to disappoint so many therapists i know do you have any do you do you you have any sympathy for that point of view it's difficult because that's the end that comes to the endless debate of what's genetic and what's actually environmental there is certainly an environmental angle to it we know that from studying the impact that fathers have on child development but no there are genes that are going to influence the way you turn out it's very very complicated like the gene environment um relationship but yes there are certain so, genetic things that as a parent you will you will not but change you can be a bad dad and have great kids you can you can yeah, you say, and, I've great news. and i've come across people like, i've come across people like that who i have read their life history they've given it mm. me and i thought oh my god you literally should be a puddle on the floor <laughs> and they're as robust as anything and the thing you look at then is you think well you must have a cast down set of genes yeah so Cosmo, what's your advice, finally? <laughs> My advice is uh, relax. Don't, don't have this, you know, get rid of the great dad dream and just, you know, get on with it. Thanks, Cosmo and Anna. And that's it for this week. Pick up this week's issue to read all the pieces discussed in this episode, as well as more from John Simpson, Simon Sharma and Cressida Bonas. And one last thing. What do you think of The Spectator podcast? We'd love to hear from you, our listeners, on what we're doing well and what we could be doing better. Send in your thoughts to podcast at spectator.co.uk. We can't always reply, but we do promise that they will be read. 
Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. 